Welcome to the K2 Sales Podcast. I'm your host, Karen Kelly. Every week, I'll be sitting down with a sales executive where they'll share their stories and experiences that produce game-changing results. Let's be honest, sales can be a tough game. I'm sure at some point, we've all delivered a less than stellar demo, been ghosted by a client or two, and sometimes maybe we did more talking than listening. And that's where I can help. The stories and insights our guests share can be applied to your own business, your territory, or with your team, so you're not reinventing the wheel. Our weekly tactics and strategies help you get out of your head and start creating your own path towards game-changing results. Welcome back to the K2 Sales Podcast. I'm your host, Karen Kelly. Now, as we're entering the second month of the new year, we're still focusing on prospecting and in the balance between, you know, what we, where our energy and our time was focused, closing off Q4 last year, but then also that fine balancing act on putting time and resources into Q1 and really ensuring that you're not leaving yourself in that feast or famine mode. And this is both for individual contributors as well as sales leaders. So I had the pleasure of speaking with Tibor Shanto today, and Tibor is definitely known as a B2B sales expert. He's an author of books such as Objection Handling Handbook. He's a co-author of Shift, Harness the Trigger Events, and Report on Sales, a collection of sales articles. He's also a host of the Breakfast Podcast, amongst many other things. So he's a wealth of knowledge, started his career in the 80s. So he brought his experiences firsthand. He he brought and shared experiences and tactics as well as methodologies he uses with his clients really in that prospecting phase um, and you know how how when marketing and sales can align and work together we create this feedback loop which really does allow us to meet our buyers where they are and when we have this congruency with marketing sales and even customer experience we can align ourselves better with the buyer's journey and, and meet them where they're at which which i find a lot of people are not doing because they're so inwardly focused on their sales process but they're also fragmented between sales and marketing so we talked about the importance of that uh, we also talked about objective based selling and so often people sell to the pain the challenge and while you might have the solution you know, maybe 10% are only experiencing that. So you might have just cut yourself short if they are not, in fact, experiencing a problem right now. So Tibor's focus is on everyone's got an objective. So how can you align your solution to their objective to really increase your business acumen, understand what they're facing as an organization, and help them achieve business outcomes and really look at the impact of that. And, and by doing that, you know, that separates you from a vendor and, and you become a partner and they really see you in a different light. And, and we talked about the importance of act, asking, you know, strategic questions to really understand this, immersing yourself in their language, where they're at, so that when you come to the table, you know, you're one of them and they feel that. So lots, lots of great tactics that we can apply immediately, lessons learned. And I would highly recommend a listen. Uh, Tibor is an absolute expert in this field. He knows his stuff and he's, he's, you know, delivered it successfully with a number of clients across many industries. So if you enjoy this, please like it. Uh, if you know somebody that would benefit from it, please share it. And uh, if you haven't already subscribed to the YouTube channel or the K2 sales podcast, encourage you to do that as well. As always, would love to hear your feedback. If there's anything that resonated that you found very useful or helpful, please let us know. Also, if you have any ideas or suggestions for guests on the podcast, please reach out at info at k2perform.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. So Tibor, the beginning of the year, I, I see most sales reps hit the panic button. And I know you've said things uh, when you choose not to prospect, you're choosing to go out of business. So I would imagine that applies to obviously entrepreneurs, but even sales reps within an organization. So can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? There's a there's a habit among salespeople and sales organizations. You know, when we when we talk about salespeople, I think it's always important to remember that I should add to the end of every sentence that somebody made them do it, like their manager or the company and so on. So when I say sales reps, it's it it means that as well. Um, but you know, at the end of the year, there's this rush to renew, to close business, to really you know, we all talk about it, and and I think there's nothing wrong with it. As with any profession, there's always, you know, a ramped up effort at the end of the period. But I think other professions do it in a way that doesn't sacrifice the future. And what I mean by that is that a lot of organizations in December spend time 
chasing the last piece of business and forget that they have to plant seeds for January and February. And you know, if you have a three-month sales cycle and you don't prospect in December, I can pretty well tell you that you're going to have a slow March, right? So one of the reasons that there's this lull or momentary pause at the beginning of the year, I think, is because people have given their energy for closing the year, right? And there's nothing wrong with that, but it should save a bit of time, which is the resource that you have to watch most, a bit of time to planting seeds for the future, uh, whether it's in the form of referral or straight out prospects. So January hits and there's not much to work on. So the energy that we were in in December when we were talking to customers, it would appear customers were willing to talk to us because some of that was negotiation and all that. And now all of a sudden we have nobody to talk to. And I think that salespeople, if you're new, it's different, but let's assume you've been in the business for a couple of years, you should begin to know the cycles of your business and begin to plan ahead. So if you have a four month cycle, and you know that you're going to be distracted in December for valid reasons, then prospect in advance for that. And you can bring it down to even the ridiculous. I find people who go on vacation and spend the last couple of days, you know, sort of getting ready for vacation instead of getting ready for the day or two after they come back so they can hit the ground running, have business, and, and not have to worry about how they pay for that vacation. So that's the sort of focus. It's really understanding the rhythm of your prospecting, which comes back to the rhythm of your sales cycle, which is all driven by the buying cycle. And from what I'm reading, they're all confused these days too. <laughs> the blind leading the blind? <laughs> or the blind following the blind, as it were. Um, but, you know, I mean, even last week I was talking to uh, Craig Rosenberg from Gartner, and he was saying that there's so much great content that's being put out by vendors, you know, the selling community, that buyers are overwhelmed and they're finding it difficult to make sense of the one can call avalanche of information. I'm guilty. I send out a lot of stuff because everybody wants to be noticed. Yeah. But think about, you know, to be a differentiator in a pattern interrupt is if you could take a piece of that and highlight it and break it down and say, based on our conversation in paragraph two, and, and what I see in my practice, it's a lot of people just, they take the PDF route out and they attach it. And our role is to really, you know, remove friction. And that is friction because it's information overload. So how can you just take a specific piece out based on past conversations or where they are in their buying process and educate them or help them compress a sales cycle to really use that content as value versus it's just a, a extra work? So I think content has to be contextual as with anything, right? And I think that many sales organizations and by attachment some marketing organizations have this vision of the market that everybody's a buyer and while that's true the timing of that buy is going to vary among different people and so most of the communication if you take marketing they have their act together to some degree because they look at awareness consideration and decision and they expect different behaviors and different thought processes in each of the stages but salespeople have this propensity to believe that everybody's in buying stage, everybody's in decision mode, when very few people are at any given time. So over time, yes, more people will buy, but if we take the month of February or any sort of fixed period, there's only so many people that are actually out there looking. So when they get hit with content that strictly speaks to what I would think about when I'm buying and I'm still in consideration mode, should I go cloud? Or should I stay on premise? That has nothing to do with the vendor. I don't need somebody coming in telling me why Azure is better than AWS because I haven't yet decided to go to the cloud. So I think a lot of the communication assumes that, the, that, that most people that are receiving the communication are in buying mode. And that's a really dreadful and dangerous sort of thought process because very few are. And the rest will remember that they got material from somebody and they'll remember that it was irrelevant at the time. And when they move into and that material might be useful, they'll have second thoughts because, you know, the buyer, the, the seller already placed themselves in the position of, do you get me or not? Mm -hmm. And I think that just goes back to meeting them where they're at. And a lot of times we're either not aligned with them based on the, the buyer's journey. And so what you're saying there, Tibor, marketing follows the typical, you know, awareness, consideration, decision-making and sales is, you know, part of it is they're throwing their agenda on their buyer, right? And so mm -hmm. why do you think that is? Why do you think marketing kind of has it streamlined and sales? Is it desperation or where are they coming from that we're 
not really aligning ourselves with the buyer journey. You know, trying to sound different, but one of the base realities that we all face in the business is that there could be better alignment between sales and marketing. And I'll take a hit for the industry. I think a lot of times more of the fault can be blamed on sales because as a tribe, we tend to be more alpha thinkers. We tend to think we know what's going on and all that. And a lot of them do. I don't want to take that away, but there's some resistance to accept wisdom from marketing. And I think that if the two were better integrated from an execution point of view, right? Because they're really, if you look at it over the customer life cycle, marketing is there all the way where sales is only there for a short period of time, right? And then, you know, customer experience comes in, occasionally sales comes back in to solve a scenario or upsell something. But if you think about the typical SaaS scenario, I mean, you know, sales is only there for a short period of time. We're probably the least time spent with the customer. So I think when I say there has to be alignment between marketing and sales, there has to be an understanding of what the overarching roles are and where we work together and where we don't have to work together. So preparing the material and all that, I don't think we have to work together. Marketing needs to let us know what the implication of the material is. So when we show up at the prospect, we can have a meaningful discussion and one that's continuous as opposed to different than the message they receive from marketing. And I'm sure you've seen it as well, where a customer based on the marketing is expecting one kind of conversation, but the salesperson who hasn't bothered to consume the marketing is, is um, you know, talking about a different experience. I'll give you a concrete example, and this happens with almost every company. So one of the things that I do as part of getting ready for dealing with a company is I go through their case studies, right? What better way to get to know what you know, what to talk about, how to talk about it, what some of the experiences and so on. And then I'm crushed. And I don't mean that dramatically. I mean that very literally when most of the people that are in the room haven't read the same resource. Mm -hmm. And then they're wondering why they're having difficulty talking to a customer or keeping the conversation straight. So I think, you know, marketing could do a better job of helping sales consume the information because I don't think salespeople will ever like to be talked to. Um, but you can make us consume things that will help us make money because we still have that green thing, I hope. Um, so, you know, I think that the way that we interact and, you know, I'm not sure that I still like it, but I'm still hopeful about the experiment that I see in some organizations where they talk about chief revenue officer. Let's take a look at revenue overall, and then we can begin to sort of break down some of the walls and egos and things like that. But I really do think that there has to be, you know, sales has to continue to bring feedback so marketing knows what the pulse of the market is. And, you know, they also have to consume what, what marketing puts out. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, having worked, you know, in corporate for many years, there was always that silo between sales and marketing. And when you think about it, there's got to be handoffs that mm -hmm. are, because as you mentioned, depending on the industry, sales is in it for a small period of time, but they need to know what happened before. And then they need to know where they're passing it off to customer experience. And it also makes me think about the BDR to AE handoff. And again, you know, if we're not aligned in these various handoffs, like we, we are creating friction and, and we're just making it difficult for our buyer to buy. We're adding another layer of internal intricacies that can be avoidable. So uh, I think one other thing you mentioned is the case studies and they're so valuable. When I do training, I just say like, here's the before, look at the language, look at the industry. Like this is exactly your message, your, your persona, everything. And so, you know, marketing could definitely, you know, incorporate that into their whatever kind of meetings they have and also just share the value is like, why do you need to do this? Like what's in it for you? But then as a whole, whether you're CRO run or not, like how can we as a whole benefit by the sharing of information and how that translates to our customer? Inherently, I'm lazy, right? So I think that the easier we make it for each other and if that, that's possible, I think the easier it will be to consume. And that's why I think that they need to exist under one umbrella, you know, beyond the theoretical that people always tell me that they all report into the president of the company, that doesn't translate to day-to-day -day execution. Um, you know, so I think that, you know, when we're having these pipeline meetings, you know, if you look at the pipeline from a marketing point of view, it's a lot larger than the salespeople would look at their pipeline. So I think, you know, and 
I don't know if it would work. Like, I'm not a big fan of the SaaS type of model, the VDR handing off and all that, because as you say, it inherently costs a lot of problems. I've listened to thousands of calls and the handoff just never works. And to make it work right, you have to double up and that's just not a good use of energy. So I think a different idea might be to have, like, I did some work once for Sears before they went under, I had nothing to do with it. It was not much before that. <laughs> but, you know, um, they were set up in pods, right? So each category was set up in a pod. So the marketing person was there, the procurement person was there, the salesperson was there. And I think there's some merit, if you think about it, to some form of pods, not physical pods necessarily, because A, we don't need that. We have the technology not to need it. But some sort of logical, looking at it strictly from the customer experience. Like what does the customer go through? You know, we all talk about the selling process, but I think it's important to begin to understand the buying process. And if we can begin to understand that, then I think we can have a different conversation with the customer. And, you know, that's where I think, you know, something you mentioned earlier, I mean, the reality is that 70% of the people you're going to call Again, it's not scientific, but generally speaking, 70% of the people you're going to call or send an email to or whatever. I'm a phone guy, so I tend to speak of prospecting like call, but I use email, LinkedIn, and everything else. But whatever you're going to do, 70% uh, of it is going to land on people who weren't thinking about that that day. It wasn't something that was on, you know, the, the, the classic status quo. The current thinking in sales in most in most elements is to go out and ask somebody if they have a pain or if they have a need. And now 10% of the people are going to put up their hand and say, yeah, man, that's me, right? But 70% of the people, the status quo people are going to say, I don't recognize myself in that question. So you've given me no choice but to say no. And then it's a downward spiral with objections and this, that, whatever, right? But if that same call took place, uh, you know, I used things I dangled in front of them were things that I was able to success, successfully achieve for customers, but in the future. So what I mean by that is I like to go back to customers six months after the fact and not ask them how much they like me or if they think I'm still cute, but I like to ask them how their workflow has changed. Because if they can explain to me how they were doing things before me and how they're doing things after me, then that's what I sell to the next customer. So if I can lead with that on the phone, or the email, there's a greater likelihood that that status quo individual will say, yeah, you know, I was thinking about that. When I do the programs, you'll relate to this, the others will have to go to Google. But I always ask, I say to them, talk about the things that they were thinking about stuck on the Dawn Valley at 8.30 in the morning on the last Wednesday of the quarter. If you can align with what they were thinking about on the Dawn Valley, you're rocking. Most salespeople won't go there, but I think that that's what they should go. They're thinking about how they're going to tackle the future, not what they're doing about the past or the present. The guy would have to be in extreme pain to the point where they would need medical care if they were at that point, which we're not qualified to give, right? So I tend to tell my customers to focus on those objectives that they help other customers achieve because it's a greater likelihood that the status quo will say, yeah, we're trying to do that as well. So I was just going to say that requires a complete separation from the product. And, you know, a lot of sellers don't know how to do that. I would agree there. And I, I think irrespective, if you're going for the objective or the pain, it definitely needs to be separate from the product. We're just trying to understand their current state, whether you're trying to solve a problem or help them achieve a goal. Mm -hmm. um, but w what are your thoughts for people that say, you know, the brain goes to the avoidance of pain before it goes, goes to pleasure? I think that's a myth that was sold to salespeople because when you look at the science, it has been shown over and over in different experiments that people actually make more effort to experience pain than, to, sorry, more effort to experience pleasure than they will to, you know, avoid pain. But again, I think a long time ago, it was easier to engage with people along particular pain and so forth. But let's face it, the internet came along and, and changed things. And, you know, while we had, as Dan Pink said, you know, information parity, now you need to have, as a salesperson, we need to bring some intelligence to the whole thing. You know, we need to think of it as how can we help you do business? You know, I, I'm a subject matter expert in helping you, you know, move things more efficiently through your pipeline. Um, somebody could be a subject matter expert in how to, you know, create 
architectural drawings quicker and get them across to the across the country. You know, so I think salespeople need to look at themselves as being subject matter experts, so then they can engage with the person at the other end of the conversation on that basis as opposed to the basis of product, like we talked about. So I like to send them back six months later and ask, you know, how do, how has your workflow changed? You know, have we been able to help you achieve your your biggest goals? And if you did a good discovery, you should have an idea of what that is. And you should know the answer to that question before you even go in, but you should still ask it. And there's a whole series of questions. Uh, people can go to my website, find the 360 and download it and make use of it. But it's fairly straightforward. The idea is to go back and ask how you have changed the customers day to day as opposed to how do they like their product, your product and this and the other. That's important. I'm not minimizing that, but it's a different conversation. And you know, you need to do that with people that you lost with as well. And that's where going back a step, marketing can be a really important tool. Mm -hmm. Because if you went through a whole process, a proper process of buying a sizable application, fifty, sixty thousand dollars, right? And that means you have gonna have to implement it, you're gonna have to integrate it, a whole bunch of things are coming behind the purchase. Salespeople forget that it doesn't end in signature, it has to be implemented, trained, is that. So if you can go back and find out all those details as to what happened and so forth, then you can talk about the future. You know, my favorite question to a prospect, assuming I haven't done my homework, which sometimes still happens, I have to admit, but, uh, you know, I would simply say, you know, Karen, if we were sitting here 18 months from now and, and you were telling me that your team had hit a grand slam, what would that look like? Mm -hmm. And you physically see them looking up in the air, thinking about it, right? Because you've allowed them to move away from the present, right? And, and think about what nirvana looks like for them, right? Something they thought about consistently, right? It's not like, you know, they might not have been thinking about it three minutes before, but as a business person, as an executive, as a person, you know, who has accountabilities, you're thinking about these things, right? So if I set you free and I say, you know, what would nirvana look like 18 months from now, right? And let them talk. Like salespeople have difficulty letting the prospect talk. But if you let them talk and they begin to think about it and things begin to percolate, you get like a lot of really interesting things. Not new things, because if you're a pro, you, you're anticipating this, but you're getting validation that you're in the right place for the right reason. And what most salespeople do, I think, is a mistake, is that as soon as they hear what Nirvana looks like, they start selling into it, right? Oh, I can help you get there. But I think the next best question that they could ask is to say, you know, Karen, I get that because, you know, some of the companies, and if you can drop a name, that's great. We're in a similar boat and we were able to get them through to the other side. The only thing I'm curious, Karen, is why aren't we there today? Mm -hmm. And when they begin to answer that question of why aren't we there today, is when you get the stuff that you can sell to. Now, in my case, it'll be things around sales and I can easily begin to talk about it, but I, I don't begin to talk product at that point because the reality is that they've allowed this discrepancy, right, to, to exist. So if you start selling to it, you're sort of selling blind and you, you're probably stepping into a trap, if not, you know, a landmine. So the next question should be, you know, what do you attribute that to? And if they answer that question, you know their line of thinking, you know why they're seeing the issue and this, that. So it's critical that salespeople not sell, but as subject matter experts, I hate the doctor analogy, so it's a subject matter expert. You ask questions that an expert would ask, you know, like, don't be afraid of the answer. The, the, the worst that could happen is that you, you find something else to talk about, but you know, getting them to explore their own thinking and then say it out loud, I think, is the best thing that salespeople can do. You know, I often look at my role as being a therapist. Yeah. You know, I ask them questions that they've been asking themselves, but I've had the luxury of not answering. Well, now there's somebody in the room who they mm -hmm. have to answer or somebody in the Zoom, depending where we are. Mm -hmm. So what you shared with me there, Tibor, really does sound like the, the, the framework that we should be following, whether it's a discovery about just, you know, the main elements of, of a good salesperson that was active listening, you know, curiosity and, and really 
and I see the same thing in my practice is they, they hit the solution button way too quick before they get to impact. And storytelling is huge, painting that before and after picture. So all those elements, I, I feel that what you're saying is the framework is the same, but if you're going to towards an objective, that's one thing. So helping them achieve a goal, or if they are the 10% or more that's, that's trying to achieve the goal, the way in which we have to do it as salespeople is very similar. I think so. And I think, you know, again, the whole idea is we're there to help them do business better, right? And so I think there's a couple of advantages that we have. We've seen a lot of people have success or have helped a lot of people have success in similar businesses, right? So, you know, you have valid experience that you can share. And I think after you've done it for a while, I think you can ask questions that are a bit more pointed and the one thing that salespeople overlook in discovery, so once we get the appointment and we go in, is that the questions themselves will define who you are. Because if I sound like everybody else that goes in, you know, and, and you know, followed the typical sort of formula, playbook, whatever label you want to put on it, as you said earlier, we trigger certain thoughts. We, we accelerate certain patterns and we narrow the walls of the conversation. Whereas if we're asking questions that they hadn't anticipated, and you know, good questions, not radical, but just business-related questions, right? Um, if we ask those, just the fact of asking that question, the fact that they say, you know, Karen asked me a question that I've been thinking about and no other sales experience. So they're going to just automatically think that you have slightly better insight than the next person because you had enough insight to ask that question. And that's what I love about going back and talking to customers is not just knowing what outcomes they're valuing, but understanding, you know, what were the things like part of the 360s, asking them, what would they have done had I not called, right? And it sounds like a fairly innocent question, but if I see that people were going down a certain path, then I can recognize prospects who are about to go on that path. Or if I see, if I'm in conversation with prospects who are on that path, I can have a conversation with them that doesn't necessarily say that you're going down the wrong path or whatever, but using my subject matter expertise and using their objectives as the point of conversation, we can change the route by which they get to that same point, right? You know, you can get the young and bluer from this, you know, bluer subway line or the young subway line, but it's still young and bluer, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for the those it's good in to Toronto. Have a Toronto as a reference point. <laughs> I I was on that line many times. I know that the change off point, uh, and and you know, Tibor, that's just feedback as well. I I think when you can look at things through the customer lens and start looking at the activities, the the, the path they were going to take and they did take is knowledge for not only this opportunity but for future opportunities that really do solidify you as a, as a subject matter expert and can kind of sell that process and the next step. So that they feel like they are in good hands. Like this person is teaching me something. I, I I thought it ended here, but wow, they just opened opened another curtain, and I see it goes well beyond that. And and I feel now that, you know, the smallest thing is going to differentiate. You know, we have to differentiate through the experience we create, and and part of that is asking very strategic, very pointed questions that, like, like you said, stop them and and say, wow, you know, she actually made me think today. And, and, and going back, if it was someone something they were already thinking about, they've now attached you to that. You will definitely stand out just based on that alone. Uh, I think the hard part, as I was beginning to mention before, is doing that with deals that you've lost. Because let's face it, you know, if a, if a salesperson has a four to one closing ratio, they're considered to be good, right? So that implies that I've lost three of them, right? Two of them I could probably tell why on my own. Probably not a safe bet, but you could probably tell. But I think that the challenge is going back to somebody where you lost. Because often, if you go back six months later, they're in the midst of implementation at the height of the chaos and all that. And here comes Tibor looking to relitigate the sale, right? It's just going to be a negative experience for everybody. So I think that's where marketing, again, can play a critical role. Because marketing can go back and get deep with the 360 in a way that a salesperson couldn't. They're not emotionally engaged the way a salesperson is. And the customer feels more open to discuss things with somebody that they feel 
doesn't have an emotional and financial stake in, in the decision directly. And as a result of that, those points can also be fed back to the salesperson that they didn't like this and not necessarily about the person, uh, but they didn't like this element of the product or they maybe they didn't like this element of the way that we looked at things or maybe they were looking for an exploration around that. All things that if I can take into my next sale will increase my chances of getting the sale. So that's the hardest part is, is going back and talking to people that where you either lost outright or the no decisions, which I think are also critical. Yeah. And I think it, whether you use marketing or some companies use a third party, like you said, that emotion is removed. And, and I can also see if they're telling me firsthand or somebody who was part of it, there's going to be selective hearing, right? You're going to hear not the full story because part of it might be like, oh man, I totally dropped the ball there, right? So when you can remove and have an impartial person go in and just collect facts and then build this back in and share that, that, that cyclical communication, that feedback loop and say, guys, this is what we're doing. And oftentimes I imagine we're unaware that we're even doing it. So I, I love the idea of having someone else because we're going to come back with half the story <laughs> because part of it is we don't want to admit that we actually you know, it was, is part of it was our error. And, and let's face it, how many, how many times the companies change a lot of these vendors? I mean, there's little, there's little barriers to change, right? And you do see that people made a decision and they realize maybe in 12, 18 months that it wasn't the right decision. Mm -hmm. And I think if you go back six months later and do an unemotional sort of like, you know, Mr. Spock type of, you know, review as to what happened, and I think they're going to remember that. When I was carrying a bag, I remember one deal I won because I called them up on whatever the first day after New Year's was. And I said, you know, the only way I'm going to be in your business is to understand why I lost. And I stayed with them the whole year. And the person that I beat that year in September picked up the phone because they realized the renewal was coming in October. But by that time, you know, I was the emotional favorite. They had no choice. So the fact that you're willing to go back and hear what went wrong, not personally, but in general, why they awarded the sale to somebody else will leave an impression that's, you know, invaluable. And at one point they will switch vendors. Yeah. Especially when you're not in the selling phase where you have, like, if you're the incumbent and you wait till that recut, that renewal time, like you've missed it. Right. And someone else is in the background doing what you did the legwork, but you know, you also have to own the pluses and the minuses. And I just think those negatives, those losses, it's, it's feedback. It's showing you sometimes it's situational. Sometimes you're never going to win anyway. And that's why I did them because I did them a lot of times when I was in corporate to keep people, keep people straight. Cause I knew there was back deals going on. And I was like, you know what? I want to know. I just want to get a chance to bat. And if you remove that from me, then I'm going to hold you all accountable. So there's a, there's an element of that too. But I just think, you know, you have to be able to take the the feedback or the losses and actually turn it into a win. And, you know, I mean, we've been telling people all this work that they have to do. So to balance it off where it becomes a bit of a plus is that you also get more comfortable with which prospects to eliminate because yep. you have a pattern now for success and you have a pattern for a lack of success. And if it walks like a duck, you know, quacks like a duck, you know what they say. <laughs> So if it, you know, again, the prospect is not going to leave the planet, right? You can have another shot at them, but if they're demonstrating attributes of somebody that's not ready for what you need, which is to exceed quota then find somebody else that is, you can always come back, right? Like I'm not saying abandon, you know, I closed the deal last year where I first called on them in 2004. So I don't give up, but it's how you use your time in those, you know, intermeeting 17 years or whatever, right? Yeah. So um that's persistence. You know, and, and I think we touched on time earlier. All this, everything goes back to time because it's the only non-renewable resource. As I said, the prospect does not leave the planet. If anything else, they have executive changes and so on, which gives you other opportunities. But time is the key thing that salespeople have to figure out. You know, it's not they, they feel that there's an endless supply. Unfortunately, it's only doled out in chunks of 24, you know? So. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and I think those who are purposeful with it, Tibor, and I always say time is the currency we trade in, are mm -hmm. going to be well, better received by their client because, again, it's a fleeting resource. So if I'm on a call and I really 
and purposeful and intentional. I give an agenda up front. I involve them. I make a two-way. That's a good use of their 30 minutes. The chances are I'm probably going to get another time, another slot with them. Whereas others who go there, they're not prepared. There's no agenda. There's no structure. There's no outcome. Like if they even stay on the call with you, you're lucky. Yeah, I think, you know, I go back to, uh, to a, song, uh, a line from my favorite song, you know, salespeople have this thing that I may make you feel, but I can't make you think, right? And I think that that's the problem is often we trigger these different feelings. But if you can go in there with questions that get them to think, right? Mm-hmm. Just get them to think. That's the whole purpose of questions. If people want to read a great book, it's like molasses. And I don't mean that negatively, it's just dense with information, is The Seven Powers of Questions. I think her name is Dorothy Leeds. Great book. If you're a parent or if you're a salesperson, you know, you should get it. And they talk about the use of questions beyond the exchange of information and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, again, I don't like the word weapons, but they could be a very they could be a very valuable tool be beyond the content that sort of goes back and forth. Well, I mean, it, it is a weapon. It starts our biggest piece of arsenal we have as salespeople and it's the only way to truly uncover and I find that people going back to time they, they haven't considered my my recommendation is always look at the objective the end goal you want reverse engineer it what the information you need and then again what questions do you need to ask to get that so that when a lot of the coaching I do their objectives are I want to have more conversational flow well you need to know what questions you're going to ask before before you get on the call versus it's so choppy and then you're down, you know, this path and then you completely go over there and you're like, that had no correlate. Like, why did you just pull them over there? And so there's questions, but then there's also an element of confidence and being able to dance in the moment and just hold space and be like, let's stay on that for a minute and allow your true personality to come through. And and I feel that there's, there's too much scripted and templates and it's just like, I got to go to question eight now because I got 20 minutes left. It's like, no, just hang on and be in the moment. I think there's a series of cartoons out by, I forget who it is, something or other. I'll let you know later, but it's for salespeople. And there's two of them that, that, that come to mind that speak to exactly what you said. One of them is the customer saying that they're ready to buy and the guy's going, no, I've got to finish my process before you could buy. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the other one is, you know, the guy gets an objection and he says that wasn't, some, that wasn't something that we covered in the workshop. So, you know. There's, as you said. But I think people need to know what they want out of a meeting. Often I, I ask people, what do you want out of this first meeting? You know, and they'll say, I want to get the sale. Well, how many times have you gotten the sale in the first meeting? Never. I go, well, then somewhat of an unrealistic expectation, isn't it? What's realistic, you know? And so you bring it down to that and you, you show them the flow, the chunks, you know, how the different cars on the train are hitched together and things, you know, but... I find most of I, I did this one training for a company. I think they've since been bought by Gartner. But, you know, I asked this guy how many meetings the average sale is. And he said about four. And I said, what do you want in the first meeting? He goes, I want to close the sale. And I go, well, what are you going back for the other three for? Like, do they have a good cappuccino machine or what? Like, you know, but it was clear that even though he was their best salesperson, he sort of bumbled into it as opposed to, as you said, deliberately attained what they set out to do. Mm-hmm. And even invite that into the agenda so that your client also or your prospect knows where you're trying to take them. That primes them for the questions. It primes them for when you're asking for those next steps. You've already told them where you're taking them. So the chances of them going there are yes versus are we now ready to move here? And they're like, oh, I needed uh, Frank on the line and I, I have all these questions. Like you need to get up at the top of the call what that outcome is and gain consensus. Are we all in agreement that that's where we want to go? That's is where we want to spend our 30 minutes. And if not, how do we want to spend it? So what you, that's a conversation that you've co-created. It's not my, my meeting, it's our meeting. I think that what you said is hundred percent right. And I think this time I won't blame the salesperson because this is a case <laughs> of somebody put him up to it. Um, you know, we get him to read all these books and, you know, there's a lot of good sales books out there and there's a lot of crap out there. You know, most of it is like memoirs of a salesperson. You know, guy got laid off in the recession and now he's going to write a book, right? So all that is well and good. But most conversations that you're having, you're having with a business person. And most salespeople haven't been set up or trained to have a business conversation. 
because that person that's seeing you is not thinking about buying something. They're thinking about addressing something. They just got a big order, so they want to figure out how to expand their capabilities. You know, let's be positive. Not every action is a result of a pain, right? They, they see an opportunity to take advantage of the supply chain challenges that we have, so they want to make a purchase and so on. That's a business decision. And the more that you can have a conversation as to what drove the business decision, what's going to happen as a result of that, and what their expectations are later, and, and, and the next stop on the journey, which you should know if you sold this thing ever in the past, right? So people always ask me what sales book they should buy, and I always say, buy the 10-day MBA. And they're surprised because I don't recommend my book. But if, if they can go out there and understand what a business decision looks like, not what a sales purchase looks like, but a business decision, they can have a lot of great conversations and they'd be in the game. But right now, they're that voice in the back that could be important once we decide. Mm-hmm. And it's too late then. Yeah. And, and what that spells to me, Tibor, is just business acumen. And, and I think when we can solve business problems, that's the umbrella. And your product and solution most likely fits in there. But we lead with just our product. And it's very silo thinking. And I had Skip Miller on here um, selling above and below the line. And it was just about trains. And if you're going in selling one train, that's very the user future benefit. But if you take a step back and talk to the, the leadership team and look at that strategic vision, where they want to go and understand their business objectives, you're probably going to get three to five trains in there. So we just have to kind of take a step back, expand our view and not be so product centric and look at how can we help them achieve their business objectives but again, what are those business objectives? We need to know what they are. So we're aligning them under, you know, so it's basically two birds for the, you know, with one stone. Yeah. You know, I own the domain and I always say, leave your product in the car. Right. Yeah. And, you know, take a couple of shovels in and see what you can dig up, you know, give one to the customer, <laughs> give one to you, start digging. And it's amazing what you find. But, you know, most people don't like to play in the dirt, so they want to keep it clean and they talk about feature benefit, right? And how much of that, Tibor, is through experience and just kind of being comfortable with yourself? I think a lot of it has to be being comfortable with yourself. You know, having grown up with a name like Tibor in a foreign environment, you know, you sort of get a thick skin and you can take more than the next guy. And I think that's my only success in cold calling is a slightly thicker callus. But, you know, but I think a lot of it has to do with your self-confidence as an individual, then your self-confidence as a salesperson. And then your self-confidence as a member of the community that you're on both sides of, right? And so, you know, if you look at an industry other than ours, you know, the people who are most successful are the ones that are active in the broader community, right? Not just the customer at the time, but, you know, for a long time when I used to target the transportation industry, I belonged to the Toronto Transportation Club. I belonged to other Mm -hmm. things and I went and, you know, I was part of the... uh, the scenery as it were. Yeah. I, I think immersion, like you have to be in it that you understand the language, you understand the day-to-day responsibility so that even, even you're not selling your product, you're just trying to help initially to show like there's goodwill there. There's also understanding that when it comes time to either achieve an objective or solve a problem, you're already in there. You've already demonstrated, you know, capability and trust. And it's not so transparent that I'm here for the sale. Like I'm just in, you know, there's an RFP issue or there's a problem. I'm here. It's like, I'm here well before that because I'm just trying to help or see if I can even help. I think, you know, sort of going back earlier, I think what most people should be trying to do is be the emotional favorite. So a, you can have a conversation anytime. And when they want to have a conversation about the subject, they're going to think of you Mm -hmm. going back full circle. If, if, I meet somebody that's in consideration and it's recognizable. You don't have to think about it, right? Then I'd be silly trying to sell them now because it's probably contingent on a number of internal things that the decision is down the road, right? But in those 12 months or 18 months that the person is saying that they need before they're able to act, that's a long runway for me to get them to love me, right? And it's rarely based on my personality. It's generally the business value that they perceive, right? But it's a long time to establish yourself as the go-to person because, as you said, I'm not selling. You have a question, I'll answer the question. I'm not going to ask you, you know, when do you want to buy? Um, you know, I'll send you P 
pieces of articles that maybe relate to what we talked about and say, hey, Karen, I read this. It reminded me of the conversation we had. I may or may not say, let me know if you want to discuss because it's implicit, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm not sending you stuff that is about my product at all. I'm sending you maybe something I saw on an industry website or an association website and saying you might want to take a look at this because it'll help your thinking, not your buying decision. Yeah, and I think that's deposit and it's also detaching from the outcome. You're just there and it, 12 months is a long time, as you mentioned, so you can add a lot of value. And what I would imagine you'll find is that sales cycle will compress and it actually won't be 12 months because as long as you're strategic with the information you're sharing and no ask, that's mm -hmm. value. Like you're educating them, you're showing them something, or you might be increasing what you shared might drive a bit of urgency or might, well, if we don't hit this objective by Q3 now, this is the impact. And that might have come about based on the information that you shared with them. And the other thing that salespeople forget is, you know, birds of a feather stick together, right? So like as a salesperson, I'm competitive maybe with my main competitor, but I don't think, I don't think a lot of CFOs or, or chief operation officers and all that feel competitive, right? They tend to feel comfortable communing and all that. So if I'm being good to one and, you know, they feel positive about me, they see me in the exact light that you painted and they happen to be in an association meeting or some sort of meeting and one of their buddies is closer to a decision and is asking for input, I'm more likely to get the referral. So people forget that mm -hmm. not being, not looking for things to happen instantly allow you to establish things and there's also side benefits. So I'm not saying that they're going to get a referral. I'm saying they have to push for it and remind people that they're there for business for others. But when push comes to shove, if that conversation should come to pass that two guys are standing at Starbucks and talking about what they're doing and one is ready to go, if I have a positive impression of a vendor that's been dealing me well, dealing with me well, I might say, hey, you know, I might want to talk to Karen because she's been really good at the stuff she's sending me. I think she gets the business. Yeah. And that's a differentiator. I mean, that also is for me a partnership. But, but alternatively, that's reactance. If you're forcing somebody um, and it's your timeline, like they're initially going to pull out. And I mean, I, I'm the same. I'm the worst customer you can get because of what I do. But the minute someone pushes me or tries to get me to move quicker, I'm just going to like tighten my grip on not going with them or, or status quo. But I think, yeah, I think that they do have to be confident. I think, you know, that's one of the reasons I encourage salespeople to, you know, look at themselves as being subject matter experts as opposed to salespeople. That's what I tell salespeople. I always start off my prospecting workshops and ask people what they do for a living. And they always say sales, finance, this, that, blah, blah. I go, bullshit. You know, you're a professional interrupter. You know, next time somebody says, what do you do for a living? Say, I interrupt people professionally, right? And if you start your day like that, then the rest of it is good because you're living up to it, right? Yeah. As long as you're interrupting with value is what I always say. Yeah. That's the whole thing. If you can show more value to the interruption, yes, you know, it was that's the it. hard part. But you know, the fact that you're interrupting is not a mystery. So you might as well put it on your card, you know? Yes. So Tibor, you have to see somebody do that, but <laughs> well, we'll wait another year. Hopefully we'll have some results. If, if people are wondering now, I want to be seen as a, you know, a subject matter expert and I want to elevate, you know, um, my game and stand out so that I, I am talked about after the meeting. What, what are some things, what are two or three things they could start doing now to really help them achieve that status? You know, if we look at it from a hunting point of view, and I have no issue with that, right? So as a hunter, what do I do? I'm lazy. I want to eat. So I go to where I'm going to have the feast, right? So they need to go to the watering hole that their prey go to, right? So if they're selling to engineers in an OEM in the auto industry, then go to some of the pages that cater to those people. People who are associations, associations are finding it more and more difficult to get money and attention. So they're always trying to be relevant. So so whatever they're talking about there is likely the subject matter or the issues that the industry is talking about. Another place I love to go to is there are a lot of organizations who put on conferences, right, that you pay money to go to and so on. So if they're going to attract, let's say, somebody to leave their office in Toronto and travel to, let's make it fun, Vegas, right? 
for let's say three days, right? Because if you go to Vegas from Toronto, you're going to lose a day one way or the other, right? So you go there for a three-day conference and so on. So it demands a lot for me as an executive to commit to three days, to commit to a couple of grand and to the hotel and all that. So if I'm going to go, they better put on a good program. So I look again, what are the programs that are being put on for, you know, traffic managers? So, you know, if I know what subjects, if I look at the agenda and the speakers and what the speakers are going to talk about, all the issues are there, right? So at that point, if you can make an intelligent line between your product and how you would address those issues, that's where I would go to get ideas. That's where I would go to learn the jargon. Because if you can drop jargon early, you seem more familiar, right? Mm -hmm. So to your question, my two favorite places, I know you asked for three, but if they just go to the first two, they will achieve they will have achieved things, which is association sites and people who are putting on four pay conferences. I think those are very valuable and it really does allow you to see what goes on in you know their their day to day and understand it. So from that, you are going to derive good questions because you have a good understanding of, you know, the, the objectives, the challenges, what's top of mind for them, because you're living in their world, you're speaking their language. And don't forget to go back after the conference is over, because often they put stuff up that was presented in the conference. And if you can go back and relate to somebody exactly what they heard at the conference, man, are you going to sound familiar? Yeah. But I mean, you don't do it exactly. But the idea is if you can understand what they heard, what might have captured their imagination, then using some of the things we talked about before, you can put certain questions out there that will allow them to test the water. And if they go into it, you go with it. If not, you move on. Yeah, I think that's very valuable. And it just breaks breaks being on LinkedIn and bring, you know, something, another avenue, another environment to find your clients. So I see you both flew out of O'Hara Airport in the last decade, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty true these days. So Tibor, if people are looking to get in touch with you, learn a little bit more about what you do, uh, your programs, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Local pub, no. Um, <laughs> I mean, as with most things, you know, LinkedIn, I'm there, I'm quite active, pushy sometimes. And then my website happens to be the same as my name, so tiborshanto.com. And, you know, you'll find all the reasons to call me or avoid me. Okay. Well, listen, thank you so much for sharing a wealth of information on prospecting, objective-based selling, um, and just really immersing yourself, understanding your customers, uh, working with marketing, and really aligning all your efforts towards the buyer's journey. So really appreciate your time today. As we, we talked about, it's a fleeting resource, so I appreciate you giving it to our audience. So thanks so much. Thank you. It's been great fun, Karen. Thank you for tuning in to the K2 Sales Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our weekly sales insights are geared towards sales reps, leaders, and small business owners to help navigate the complexity of modern day sales. Our tactical takeaways help you put a plan in place to start creating your own game-changing results. Until next time, happy selling. This podcast was produced by Tosh Taylor of the Podcast Hub Productions. Find her online at podcasthub.ca.